Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey, good afternoon, friends. Happy Thursday. Welcome aboard. Rob Breckenridge with you. This is Afternoons on QR Calgary. A lot to get to today. Your phone calls, uh, of course, along the way, 403-974-8255, 974-TALK. Uh, today's the final day of November. It is also day one of the big COP28 summit in Dubai. Now, Alberta's premier the environment minister and, and a sizable Alberta delegation are going to be there. There, of course, will be a federal delegation at the COP28 summit. And we'll see what comes out of this. But one of the questions going into these climate summits, like, is Canada's position here? I mean, should Canada be going into this meeting expecting to be lectured by other countries, basically going into this meeting as though we've got something to be ashamed of? Or is this a situation for Canada to really hold its head high and for Canada to tell the world about the really positive story that's happening here? And our next guest argues that it's the latter, that we've got a great story to share. And in fact, uh, in so many respects, we are world leaders when it comes to balancing energy development and the environment. Well, joining us for some thoughts on the COP28 summit and how Canada and Alberta are positioned going into this. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Cody Bannersill, founder and CEO of Canada Action. Cody, great to have you with us uh, as always. Welcome back to the program. So much for having me on. We appreciate you making some time for us here today. So, you know, there, there is that question, you know, that, that we have these debates at home about uh, energy and environmental policy and is, is Canada laggard, as, as some suggest. But uh, from your perspective, you know, does Canada have a lot to be proud of going into this summit? We, we, see, we have these debates at home. And it, unfortunately, often they're, you know, kind of a special interest anti-Canadian energy narrative mm-hmm. that doesn't really talk about what's happening globally. Going into COP28, we have absolutely every reason to hold our heads high, to be proud of our record, to be proud of what we've done, to be proud of the women and men who make up our energy industry. And I think it's interesting that COP28, they expect 70,000 people there. It's also being held in Dubai, a major oil and gas exporter. And it's an interesting time in the world, energy security, very important for many countries around the world. Affordability, very important here at home and also for many countries around the world and sustainability. And I think Canada has an amazing record to tell on all of the above. Right. And I mean, you know, certainly there is still demand for fossil fuels globally. And so it becomes a question, I think, or it ought to anyway, of, you know, which country is the most responsible producer to meet that demand? So when you look at Canada's record in terms of keeping emissions in check, in terms of balancing sustainability uh, and the environment, what what would you point to in Canada's record that, that would be held up at a summit like this? Well, you're bang on, Rob, about fossil fuel usage. It's still about 80% of global energy demand. We know that we're going to need fossil fuels for decades and even generations to come. Canada, In Canada, we have so many amazing things to be proud of. A couple examples. Uh, we're a leader in carbon capture, utilization, and storage in the, in the sort of Edmonton heartland, oil sands region, also in Saskatchewan, also the development, the collaboration happening with the Pathways Initiative. 
We are also a leader uh, as an industry in the country in investing in clean technology and environmental protection. That's the oil and gas industry. We know that uh, emissions from the Canadian oil and gas industry, upstream emissions peaked eight years ago. It's something we haven't heard a lot about. And emissions have since fallen 7%, despite production growing by 16%. And that's according to the Globe and Mail. And we're also a leader in reducing methane and flaring. And this is a, a crazy number. If the whole world copied our standards for methane and flaring reduction, it would reduce the average emissions per barrel of production by 23%, like taking 100 million cars off the road. And at the same time, the industry is also a leader. The broader energy industry, Canada as a jurisdiction, broader leader in hydropower, in small modular reactor development, in uh, wind and solar development, in all of the above. And we're going to need all of the above to keep the lights on, to keep Canadians employed, and to keep the world supplied with the energy it needs. Why is it then, Cody, that, I mean, you know, there, there are environmental groups in this country that, that try to portray Canada as part of the problem. And, and that's where the perception comes from that, you know, maybe we should be hanging our heads in shame going into this COP summit or that other countries would be in a position to lecture us. So where, where does that come from, do you think? You know, when the Keystone XL protest movement started, the leader of that, Bill McKibben from 350.org, he was quoted in Rolling Stone magazine as saying that the attack on Keystone XL was more about a symbolic win for the climate change movement. And as a Canadian, I don't think we should be a symbolic target when our record actually supersedes and beats out a lot of the other countries that have benefited from these protests. When, when groups were protesting Northern Gateway or Trans Mountain, they're not talking about the Alaskan tankers on the West Coast. When groups are protesting Energy East, they're not talking about Saudi tankers coming in to the Atlantic provinces. And when groups are talking about shutting down LNG from Canada, they're not talking about how we sell gas to the U.S. that they then export for the global price. And and that obviously doesn't benefit our Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities, workers uh, right across the country, or government revenues to cover our social programs. So it is a... Uh, it's really important we speak up. That's what we've been doing for many years, mm-hmm. and it's really important we speak up and we know these facts, these, these, these things that we should be proud of about Canada's role and Canada's, I think, responsibility in helping to meet growing global oil and gas demand and just demand as long as it exists. If Canada makes it, we should be selling it. Well, and you mentioned LNG, and I think there's real opportunity, and, and there seems to be some agreement between, you know, the B.C. government, the Alberta government, and even the federal government that Canadian LNG exports, if those exports are displacing the use of coal in other countries, that, that's a net win for the environment, and, and Canada should get some credit for that. Are we seeing some progress in that area? We've, we've seen this talked about more, and I don't know that there's currently some sort of mechanism that quickly able to be implemented where where that credit would be would be given the credit is due when we think about gas versus coal for power generation the ipcc the international government panel on climate change they say that gas is 50 percent lower emissions now canada we will have the lowest emissions of lng liquefaction exports anywhere in the world with with lng canada and some of these other projects many of those projects also being developed by Indigenous communities. So it doesn't make sense for someone to say they're, they want to take climate action, but they don't support LNG from Canada because LNG demand is going to grow 76% by 2040, according to some forecasts. That, as much of that as possible should be coming from Canada, benefiting Canadians. 
with the lowest emissions, and that's Canadian again. There's many reasons for us to really hold our heads high and talk about the reality that we can be sustainable while supporting local families, thinking about affordability, while also helping our allies, all these countries that have come to Canada asking for our energy. And yes, we missed a big opportunity on the East Coast, but we do have a meaningful opportunity right now on the West Coast that we need to seize. We need to see a couple more of these projects get built. And we all need to continue lending our voice to that discussion. Very important. Yeah. Uh, carbon capture is an interesting area, too. And I think there's a real potential where not just, you know, resources that we're exporting, but, but knowledge, uh, expertise, technology. Seen some big announcements uh, lately from both the feds and the province. Uh, what do you think about where things are going on the carbon capture front? Carbon capture, Rob, is another amazing example of a reason that every single Canadian, when fully informed, can be proud and can hold their head high. It's not, it's carbon capture, it's clean technology, it's the innovation, it's the technological ecosystem. It's the engineers and the technology developers and it's the construction workers and it's everyone working together to develop these new innovative systems and many uh, globally in the climate change, climate action kind of arena, we'll talk about how, you know, realistically, you are going to need some some carbon capture. Mm-hmm. We already have Boundary Dam in Saskatchewan and, and, and oil sands upgraders. We have this amazing collaboration happening with the big oil sands companies. And again, it's not just those big companies, but it's the small technology providers. And it's something we can export. Like, we have exported our oil and gas knowledge and know-how to the whole world in the last 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. It's another opportunity to export our our ingenuity, our experience and our expertise being developed in Canada to benefit the whole world. It's brilliant. We'll see what comes out of this summit uh, and to what extent, I guess, the feds and the province are, are sort of, you know, singing the same song here, telling these these important stories. I think it's important the rest of the, the world hears them. Much more at CanadaAction.ca, also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at CanadaAction. Cody, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us here. Thanks for your time, Rob. Appreciate it. All the best. Uh, that is uh, Cody Battersill, founder and CEO of Canada Action. Uh, so they want to make sure that Canadians hear the story, but to also make sure that those that are attending the summit, and there's the provincial... Uh, you know, delegation we're sending, the federal delegation we're sending, uh, that they're also telling that story. And I know here at home, you know, the feds in the province, I don't need to tell you, don't see eye to eye on everything. But I think there's a real positive story that, that both would have a vested interest in, in wanting to be known. So some of the facts that Canada Action points out, uh, oil and gas upstream emissions, they peaked eight years ago and have fallen 7%, in fact, despite production growing over that time. Uh, when it comes to reducing methane and flaring, you look at what Canada has done. If the rest of the world did what we have done, it would be the equivalent of taking 100 million cars off the road or reducing upstream emissions per barrel by 23%. Uh, not to mention where we're leading on technology and in a lot of other areas. Uh, so the, the doom and gloom side will, would have you believe that Canada's a laggard, Canada's a problem, uh, that maybe we should be uh, getting lectured by other countries at this COP summit. But uh, I think there's a strong case that it's the other way around. Anyway, CanadaAction.ca. You can reach us here this afternoon, 403-974-8255, 974-TALK.
Welcome back. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Thursday afternoon. Our number 403-974-8255. A lot more still to get to in this hour. But off the top, the latest on the Online News Act, which was previously Bill C-18. And there was the government's attempts, they say, to, to assist or to save uh, journalism in Canada. So the idea of the Online News Act was that uh, platforms like Facebook, Instagram, and Google... Uh, which dominate the the online advertising landscape in Canada, uh, they benefit from having Canadian news on their platforms. News organizations create that content. It's accessed through these platforms. Therefore, they should uh, share in the spoils. So the idea being that these companies would enter into agreements with news organizations, compensate them for those links. Uh, Somewhere to the tune of $320 million uh, was the uh, initial estimate. At least that's what the parliamentary budget officer pegged it at. So after um, many bumps along the way, to put it mildly, including Meta, which owns Facebook and Instagram, just walking away, the government now at least has something to show for this. An agreement with Google that's for far less than the government originally anticipated, and it doesn't involve Google actually making any deals with news organizations. They're going to put some money in a pot. And that'll be the end of their involvement, something they were apparently willing to do all along. So to what extent is this uh, salvaged or saved? What do we make uh, of, of the impact that this could possibly have? Joining us uh, for some thoughts, somebody who's been following all of this very closely, Dr. Michael Geist, a law professor at the University of Alberta, is Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law, much more at michaelgeist.ca. Dr. Geist, always great to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Well, thanks for having me. So uh, how do we describe this? I mean, is, is this uh, salvaging the Online News Act? Is it back on track? Or what, what does this represent to you? Well, I think certainly it is an attempt by the government to salvage what to date has been a pretty big mess. And, and you mentioned right off the top that uh, the estimates that they had were at a low end of $150 million to a higher end of um, $330 million for the parliamentary budget officer. They're now nowhere near any of those numbers. Um, and when you add in the reality that Meta, as you note, has walked away, and, and we should be clear, when they walk away, they are removing links to news stories, which has a negative impact on publishers. There's less traffic, therefore less ad revenue. They're walking away from news deal, existing news deals, so money's taken off the table that certain entities were already getting, and they're not generating any revenue out of this bill either. So that's a pretty big loss. It seems to me that everybody was uh, you know, involved in this was hoping for some way out, a little bit of trying to save face. and. Google may have provided it, although it doesn't even sound like some of the beneficiaries are, at this stage, all that effusive I mean, with praise. In fact, some of them haven't even put up press releases lauding the New Deal. So what's different about what Google has now agreed to versus how this was all originally envisioned in the Act? Okay, that's a good question. It's As you mentioned, it's pretty similar to what Google had said all along. Google said, listen... $100 million, which was one of the initial estimates that they would be required, was in the ballpark. and something anyone likes to fork over $100 million, but they had indicated that was at least ta- talking kind of financial language that they could live with from a precedent perspective. And they said that far better than having to negotiate individually with a wide range of news entities, potentially hundreds of them, um, they really preferred a fund model where they kick in a check, and it would be up to someone else to figure out how all that would be divided up. And that's roughly what we now have with the need to negotiate with a single collective, which would represent the media, and then Google will provide this money, and 
the government regulations plus the collective will figure out how it gets distributed. So that's where we're at. But note that that description of how the law will now function is not remotely close to how the government sold this legislation. And in fact, how they even got there with the government saying that they would not be involved directly in negotiating and they would not be involved in approving the deals. It would be the CRTC that would do all of that. All of that is out the window. And what we really had was the government now negotiating directly with Google, coming up with a dollar amount, and that will dictate to the CRTC and say, that's good enough. This just isn't even close to the bill that the government said they wanted. And so when Google said, this law is not workable, we can't sign up for this, it appears the government ultimately agreed because to get to the point where there was an agreement, they overhauled the legislation. So it seems like the government's come to Google's position. So if Google was willing to do this all along, or at least at a much earlier point, uh, could this have been done much sooner? I think it could have. Had, had, had the government been much more open to other possibilities and viewed criticism of their approach as constructive and seeking to find alternative ways to address these issues, as opposed to you know, the claims they often made, just shilling for big tech and there's no, no desire to be regulated. I don't think that was ever really the case. I think there was an openness to addressing these issues, but there were it was flawed legislation and people were trying to make that case. Had they done so, I think this would have certainly had smoother sailing along the way. And I think it's in the realm of possibility that they might have found some way to get Meta on board. But as it is, uh, you know, they're not there. And even the $100 million that they've got... Google has existing deals with a wide range of media outlets. Those on the financial side will be folded into the $100 million. So it's not entirely new money either. It's whatever new money is above what they're already spending. So there's some real money there, but it certainly isn't close to what the government had suggested, nor what I think some in the industry were expecting. Well, I think maybe the government hopes that... You know, that the message to, to Meta is that we're w- willing to cave on all of this, even if they're, they're not going to say that publicly. Do you think there's any prospect that Meta looks at this and, and maybe comes back to the table, or is, is that door really closed? Well, they've said it's closed, but, you know, given that the government basically has made these big changes, and we'll see, the, uh, I guess, the, the fine detail once the regulations come out in a couple of weeks, is it possible that they look at this and there's a decision to have a conversation and the government's priority becomes just getting Meta back online in terms of news and says, listen, it's not going to take a lot of money here. What we really want is you just to, to ensure that the news link blocking is done. It's certainly in the realm of possibility, but note that the position of that company is news just doesn't have a lot of value on the platform. And it's quite clear now that given this has been going on for months in terms of the news link blocking on Facebook and Instagram, that they're not planning to back off on, on that basic position unless, essentially, there's no real cost to news to them. It's interesting. The, the Heritage Minister um, before committee confirmed that you know the CBC, which receives substantial public funding, will qualify. They'll be eligible for some of this Google money, which is interesting. But what's your understanding of, of who's going to make the decisions and, and how those decisions are going to be made? Yeah, I think there's a bit of confusion on that front. Um, the, the minister didn't need acknowledge, and it's what it says in the law, that the CBC is eligible. The, the concern that's arisen, and I think it's, it's one that kind of dogged this legislation for quite some time, is that if it's based, if allocations are based primarily or exclusively on the number of 
full-time journalists or equivalent to full-time journalists, then the broadcasting sector gets about three-quarters of the money. So Bell, Rogers, Chorus, CBC are the primary beneficiaries. In fact, the CBC might even be the biggest beneficiary of all this. If you're talking about $100 million and you're now saying that all print publications, all the regional publications, all the digital publications are now being forced to split $25 million, there's got to be a lot of those publications saying, look, you can't be serious, that this is what we went through for $25 million. There are some that have existing deals with these companies that likely will now lose money on that basis alone, that their allocation of that money would be less than their existing deal with the platforms. It was interesting timing, too, because we had the fall economic statement uh, just a couple of weeks ago from, from the government, and it included uh, an extension or doubling of this, this journalism tax credit, which I believe it's, it's only for newspapers, not, not for broadcasters. But what do you see as the connection between the problems in the Online News Act and, and increasing this tax credit? Yeah, no, I think that I think there is a direct connection. I'm glad you raised it because I think, you know, you you don't have to be a political insider to see a connection between an outcome on Bill C-18 front, on the Online News Act front, where the broadcasters get the lion's share of the money. There isn't even enough money in there for traditional print and digital publications to make back what they were already making in certain respects. And so one way to offset that is for the government to basically come up with a bailout, which is roughly what they did in the fall economic statement, by more than doubling the tax credit that's available on a per journalist basis. And those are that tax credit system is only available to the print and digital for those publications, those outlets that qualify as qualified Canadian journalism organizations. And so you can sort of see these two things operating in concert where on the one hand, broadcasters get the bulk of the money out of the Online News Act, and the traditional print publications get a little bit of that, but then they also get this very large, essentially, bailout that's coming through public tax dollars through the tax credit system. We'll see what all uh, happens next here. Much more at michaelgeist.ca. Michael, again, appreciate the insight. Thanks for joining us here today. Uh, my pleasure. Thank All the best. Me. There you go. That's uh, Michael Geist, Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law at the University of, Alberta, uh, University of Ottawa, where he is a, a professor of law and uh, has really been all over both C-18, the Online News Act, and the uh, digital streaming legislation, Bill C-11. So, yeah, I mean, look, it, we talked about this yesterday, and, you know, I mean, it was, it was a good news day for the government. Uh, they had something to announce because, as it stood, it was just the worst-case scenario for the Online News Act because it targeted only these two companies and neither of them had agreed to anything. So at least you've got something from one of them and you can hold that up. How much further along would we be if the government had simply said a year ago or more, okay, Google, you're willing to do that? That works for us. Let's do it. Instead, they told Google, no way. That, that's not going to fly. That's not what we want. And Google stuck to its position. And fast forward to this week, the government's decided that's acceptable after all. So that, that's, that's got to be frustrating. We would be a lot further along. I don't know. It, look, I don't know if this is going to bring Meta to the table. I think part of the problem here of the government's uh, actions and Meta walking away is Meta's had a chance to assess, well, what's it like if we don't have news on our platforms? And if they've concluded that, you know what, we're just fine, why would they come back? And so... There's no one doing that damage, unfortunately, where, you know, as media outlets, we don't have the opportunity to get our content to people that way. Uh, Canadians are having a harder time staying informed on those platforms. 
it's it's not you, and you can't put a positive spin on that. So I think that's an unfortunate consequence of all of this. So in the long run, is this a net benefit for journalism in this country? I don't know. Uh, I guess you can say with this the deal this week, there's some good, but there's all the, the damage that's been done along the way, too. And welcome back. Thanks for being with us here at a Thursday afternoon. Rob Breckenridge with you. Our number 403-974-8255. We'll get back to more of your phone calls. A lot more still to get to on the program this afternoon. Let's turn our attention right now, though, to some of the issues around crime safety in Calgary. And we've had some high profile, really frightening incidents as of late. Well, we had uh, a, a shooting, a broad daylight shooting just recently uh, outside a busy restaurant in the south. Uh, we had uh, multiple people stabbed in separate incidents at busy malls, one of them, uh, albeit uh, just uh, on the outskirts of Calgary. And, and, you know, in the middle of this month, there was uh, that span of five shootings in four days. So th- there's a real concern that this is all targeted, that there are links to gangs or organized crime. And I think people want some answers. Uh, last night, there was uh, an invite-only meeting at the Marlboro Community Association involving police and community groups to talk about all of these issues. Uh, also in attendance was uh, the city councilor for the area, Ward 5 City Councilor Raj Dhaliwal, who joins us on the line this afternoon to talk more about these issues. Councilor, thank you for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, and uh, good afternoon to all the list- your listeners. So what was the, the, the purpose or the focus of this meeting last night, first of all? Well, I, I think you touched on some of the things what we have seen in the last couple of months, a month and a half, all started with that uh, Falcon Ridge uh, daylight shooting um, that happened in the plaza and then subsequent um, uh, incidents. And then finally, the, those four shootings in five, five shootings in four days. So the uh, community was uh, kind of, they, they had anxiety, they were kind of concerned, they were concerned, they were looking for answers, they were looking for information, they felt the information was very foggy, they were not kind of, um, uh, they were not getting what they wanted to, to hear in a way, especially when uh, those charges were dropped against those two, um, uh, right. those two teenagers. So the purpose of this uh, town hall was to kind of clear the picture and bring in the community leaders uh, from the from board five and board ten and CPS together and have those candid open discussions. Uh, but information on what is it? Just that you know they they're not hearing enough from police, or they they want more information about certain or specific things. Well, it, it, here's the thing: it, it's a very uh, it's a, it's very interesting, and sometimes it's 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 you've got to be careful because we as elected officials can only share that much information because we don't want to jeopardize sometimes uh, some of the ongoing investigations and so on, right? Right. And sometimes uh, even CPS can only share that much info, uh, that much information with us, but then. Uh, some of that information that maybe we hear from them, we don't want to go put that through interpretation lens. So the purpose was when we heard from the uh, from the residents, they were asking some questions that we couldn't answer. Um, if you want to put it in, in that putting that legal lens, um, especially the questions around why Falcon Ridge shooting happened, why it was that area was chosen, why those two teenagers were charged and then let go. So we felt appropriate that. That uh, that we should bring the people who, who who can better provide those answers and information, so 
these leaders can take that information, hear it firsthand, Q&A, dissect it right there, and then take the message back to the community. Right. What, what can you tell us then about, you know, what's what's driving all of this? Why we've been seeing, you know, this this spate of shootings and stabbings as of late? Like what, what information do we have or that you can share with us? Well, what, what we heard yesterday, I mean, there were a few things uh, we can pinpoint. What I heard from CPS was that, first of all, the nature of this crime or shootings have changed shooting crimes. Uh, it used to be mostly... Uh, concentrated around uh, organized crime, but now what the data they were showing was that 25 to 30 percent of them are organized crime, and 70 percent have taken a different nature, be it, um, you know, road rage and all that. Second is just the, ma- just the amount of guns that are on the streets, even though CPS is doing a great job, like uh, Station 4 just uh, confiscated, I can't remember, like multiple guns um, uh, and t- took them off the street. Um, and the third one is basically uh, we have talked about it and it's it's been happening at every level of the government is, uh, levels is the, is the bail reforms. Are we providing enough support to our police uh, agencies uh, that they are not uh, put at shorthand when it comes to some of these uh, repeat criminals who come on the who are arrested, but as soon as they're arrested in few hours, if not days, they're on the street. So it's making life very tough. And the fourth one is the determinants uh, of crime. They have changed. Uh, we are seeing lots of things uh, now with you know, affordability, uh, food insecurity, uh, sense of marginalization, and, you know, the, having a tale of two cities in Calgary, for instance, example, east side versus west side, mm-hmm. uh, you know, social inequity, uh, that kind. So there's all those factors. Yeah. Uh, you alluded to the, you know, the wrongful arrests of these two young people, the 14-year-old and the 18-year-old, and, and we learned today the RCMP is going to take over kind of the investigation to how that happened. I think people want some answers because, you know, there's there's a lot of pressure on police to to solve these crimes, to, to put people behind bars, the ones that are committing this. And so, the, you know, the idea that they would get it so badly wrong, I think, has is, is shaken some confidence. So what are your thoughts on that? I mean, and you know what, I, I was very, uh, I was um, in a way yesterday when they started this conversation, uh, the, the one thing they used was the fragile trust. And they said that, that trust with the community and, uh, is fragile and it kind of gets destroyed when incidents like this happen where they arrest people and then they get a release. Um, but they have also said that they're looking into it with the proper independent investigation, and I'm looking forward to seeing the report. But what I heard yesterday from um, from um, uh, Station 4 there, uh, sorry, District 4, was the situation was very fluid. Uh, they had identified individuals. Uh, they had the description. They had the clothing description. They had the car description. Then the incidents happened after that where the car was racing 150, 160. Mobile pol- uh, police officers, when they looked into the car, the car met all the description met what they had been told. So they had to, at that point, they felt that they had enough grounds to move forward with that because they don't want to jeopardize the safety uh, of maybe other bystanders and so on. So I'm looking forward to the report. I think these things will probably come out of that. Uh, But at the same time, what I'm encouraged to see is that 
circumstances changed, the new information came to light, and Crown decided to drop the charges, which means that our justice system is still robust and working. So are you confident, are you also confident in, in conveying to your constituents that, you know, police are, are doing all they can to, to deal with these, these issues? I think I think what I uh, like, and, and this is not the first time I've had discussions with them. Uh, last year, if you remember, Ward Five had its own disproportionate amount of gun violence, yeah. uh, and this discussion we we had a very candid discussion last year. And one thing that I heard from CPS was, this is not a CPS problem anymore. This is community problem too. And I I kind of I I kind of took that to the heart and invited uh, some of the community members. So what? police is telling us is uh, they need help from the community. Sometimes community know who these people are, but they're not willing to speak up. So what we need is we need to have more of these discussions. We need to open lines of communication. And also, we and NCPS is fully aware of this, that, that what I talked about was the fragile trust, that trust needs to be won back. And those discussions, they shouldn't be happening once, like every few months. They should be continuous. And that information sharing always helps uh, residents. For instance, yesterday I was told um, that there's this program, Yards, that Calgary Police uses and work with uh, um, youth from age 5 to 12. Uh, we need to tell uh, this, uh, these kind of programs. I believe it's 5 to 15. But anyways, we need to... We need to reach out to communities and introduce them to these kind of programs. So there's preventive and intervention uh, mindset right from the get-go. We'll leave it there for now, Councillor. Appreciate making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks for this. No, thank you for having me. Have a great day. You too. There you go. That's uh, Ward 5 City Council Raj Dolly. Well, uh, some thoughts on this meeting that uh, occurred last night uh, in Falcon Ridge involving community members and community leaders and city police. And just an update on, you know, what's going on with some of these investigations and how they're responding to some of this crime and what appears to be gang violence. A lot of challenges facing Canada's cities uh, these days. I mean, housing's a big one, but it's not the only one. I mean, financial challenges, uh, downtown challenges, office vacancy challenges, a lot of issues uh, that come with growing urbanization, and especially, too, for cities coming out of the pandemic. Uh, So there's a new report out today from the Canadian Urban Institute, the state of Canada's cities. And so they make some recommendations for how a lot of these issues can be addressed, and specifically when it comes to housing. They've got some recommendations, some of which is happening in Calgary, the idea of converting empty office buildings into housing. But they also recommend using more public land to get housing built. So kind of a different way of looking at all of this, but maybe also trying to give some some urgency to this whole situation. Uh, You can read more, by the way, uh, at the website. It's canurb.org. But joining us on the line here this afternoon, it's Mary Rowe, who is president at the Canadian Urban Institute. Mary, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. Thanks. You're making me realize we really need to change our domain name. It sounds it doesn't sound very jazzy, does it? Canner.org. It works. Glad to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for making some time for us here. So let's talk about the crossroads that we're at here because, you know, emerging from the pandemic, a number of challenges remain for cities. And at the same time, you know, we're seeing increased urbanization in this country. Right. I mean, this is part of why this is such an important seminal conversation. It's why we put it here in Ottawa. We wanted to really flag for people that we're not the Canada we were in 1867. We're one of the most urbanized countries in the world. The populations are growing in these urban environments and these regions. And, you know, we haven't probably invested in the kind of different forms of infrastructure and social infrastructure we need to support that population growth. 
not going to stop. And we've got all these other challenges, climate challenges, equity challenges, economic development challenges, and all of that is coming kind of to roost in urban environments. What level of urgency would you say there is around these issues? Well, you know, uh, cities are the product of decades and decades and decades and decades of evolution. So you don't get into a situation overnight Mm -hmm. where uh, these things accumulate over time. But you're right to say what's the urgency because there is some. We know that we don't have the right housing mix. We don't have the right number of choices of different kinds of dwellings. We know that we have an income disparity issue across the country. And then what's been surfacing more and more in people's minds is what is the future of the economy looking like? How are we, what kinds of jobs are we creating or being created here to sustain communities, particularly not just people that are, have been in their communities for years, but all the newcomers that are arriving. So I think we've got a bunch of pressure points right this minute and the pandemic exacerbated some challenges that existed before. Uh, and it made them worse or they made them happen more quickly. And so it's a kind of a confluence of a whole bunch of things. But the important thing to recognize is that urban environments are about people and their relationship to each other and the place in which they find themselves. And that means we have tremendous assets. We have really, really good assets of uh, buildings and public spaces and uh, places to learn and places to uh, and, uh, you know have fun and places to be uh, uh, create different kinds of opportunities. And so how do you leverage the existing assets? I'm standing here talking to you, looking at the skyline in Ottawa, where we have hundreds of people coming from across the country to talk about this. And we're all agreeing that we have lots of lots of positive things to work on, and we just have to invest strategically to strengthen them. It's interesting, too, because this report calls for a national strategy. And, you know, municipalities are a level of government unto themselves. But, uh, you know, they, they are creatures uh, of provincial governments to a large extent. And then, of course, the federal government has a lot of uh, jurisdiction on some of these areas. So why is it important then that we kind of get everybody on, on the same page here? Well, it's interesting, you know, we have uh, some colleagues from the United States on the program this morning here that are here talking about the, the report that you're reading, uh, that you're referring to. And one of the things that they said is that in the United States, when they talk about city, they don't mean municipal government. They mean all the different components, sectors, uh, actors that are present in an urban environment. So post-secondary institutions, institutional leaders, community activists, business folks, private sector folks, uh, people from each order of government. They don't even call them levels there. They call them orders of government. So this is a kind of partnership that's place-based, that's focused on what can we each bring. And local governments bring a certain expertise and uh, and perspective. Provincial government, similarly. Federal government, similarly. Um, yes, we have some some um, ways in which these have been arranged over 150 years. Uh, but a lot of that is just hasn't been evolving. You know, we work around arrangements all the time. You know, and we certainly did during the pandemic. There wasn't a lot of time spent wasted asking whose jurisdiction it was to deal with people that were needing more supports or couldn't find shelter or needed to, have to be protected from some kind of uh, when the pandemic was at its worst. Uh, that was a really perfect example of how we can rally and how we can collectively organize ourselves in ways that are efficient and appropriate. So I think that's part of what we're talking about now is 2023 going forward, climate crisis, all these different things. We're going to have to align ourselves, figure out what, what, what each order of government is best at, figure which sectors can make the contribution, what roles we each have, and then collectively move forward with that kind of through line of, of what the future will be together. On the issue of housing, and I mentioned that national strategy, because it talks about how, you know, housing does link to some of these other issues, that to have a strategy that, that incorporates housing, but also labor and immigration. So mm-hmm. why is it important to kind of tackle some of these problems together? 
Well, interestingly, I mean, the, the, the critique on the national housing strategy, I mean, everyone's glad we had one, have yeah. one, but everybody's saying, well, we actually need a national economic development strategy. We need a national community strategy. We need a national transportation strategy. All of it is linked. And I think that's one of the important things about the lens you have when you work at the municipal level or in the local level um, is that you can't think about anything in isolation because, you, you know, you don't just build housing. You have to actually build neighborhoods, complete neighborhoods. You have to invest in different kinds of amenities. You've got to have libraries. You've got to have community centers. You've got to have recreational space. You've got to have main streets with vibrant businesses. So it's all, that's one of the important things about looking at this. We're kind of turning the the, the uh, picture upside down. We're yeah. saying instead of looking from the top down, let's look from the bottom up. You build communities from the bottom, they build themselves from the bottom up. And what are all the different components that we need that are, there are some that have been neglected Housing is one of them. Uh, and so what are the kinds of investments that we can collectively make to continue to build from the bottom up and create complete communities? So not no single intervention. You can't afford a single intervention anymore. Mm-hmm. You've got to do things that deliver multiple benefits. Yeah. On the issue of housing specifically, there's some interesting ideas in this report, like using uh, more public land to build housing mm-hmm. or trying to convert underused uh, office mm-hmm. space into residential space. So how can we maybe combat this this issue differently, do you think? It's interesting, you know, one of the uh, essayists, Ursula Eicher from um, Next Gen Cities in Concordia, her first line is, uh, all the buildings that we need by 2050 are already built. So she's making the point that we now need to double down on retrofitting, on taking the existing structures that we've got and making them more flexible and adaptive. And we had written a previous report at CUI, again, with people across the country in different circumstances and cities, about what's the potential to convert office space, commercial space, into accommodation housing spaces. Now we're talking about could you convert those into post-secondary learning spaces? Could you put them, could they be uh, converted into creative spaces, cultural spaces or light manufacturing? That's the important thing is that there are many, many, many different steps that we can all take and that's part of what we're trying to highlight here is that it's a moment to be really imaginative. You know, cities are fundamentally flexible and adaptive. And so going forward, we want to be able to figure out what's the highest and best use for every asset we've got. And then so that you don't have people sleeping in parks, for instance, that's not the best use of a park. So that means you then have to rethink, well, what about some of those smaller motels? Could they be converted as they were during the pandemic? Uh, in addition to these larger commercial office space uh, conversions. So there's a whole reshuffling going on. It's interesting, eh? And you guys are yeah. leading that. Calgary is, the, is at the lead of providing the incentives and looking at what the conditions are to allow commercial conversions to happen quickly and, and, and appropriately and efficiently. Well, and, and that's what's interesting about, you know, having such a, a diverse country that, you know, some cities are taking different approaches and maybe there's an opportunity to sort of build on what works in, in one part of the country, maybe try to, you know, apply those lessons elsewhere. Is there that opportunity? Yeah, totally. I mean, it's one of when I took this job, I said, you know, we've got to be the connective tissue in this country. We have a vast geography with a relatively small population. We're the most urbanized country in the world. And we're not set up in terms of our governance. Uh, we're not set up to share across horizontally. We're sort of set up vertically, you know. Mm-hmm. As you say, uh, you know, the, the municipality or the local environment reports to the province that goes to the feds. And so part of what we've been challenged by is how does Kamloops learn from Antigonish? And we need to create those kinds of learning pathways. And, you know, money does that. Money moves across. It, it crosses the, the Rockies. Mm-hmm. So ideas need to, too. Best practice needs to, too. So, so much of what we're doing here is building networks of collaboration and doing that at every scale, whether it's in your local neighborhood, your city, your district, your region uh, and then your district and then as I say across the country and that's a lot of what I think is this is part of what this conversation is is to stop thinking 
narrowly in silos, you know, that's the old phrase, to stop thinking about Canada as some kind of monolithic thing, but recognize it's a, an aggregation of communities of all sorts of different kinds of sizes and challenges, but that there's something collective about us that we could be taking steps together to strengthen. Some important points. Uh, as mentioned, it's the State of Canada Cities Reports, canurb.org. Mary, thank you so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this. Delighted to talk with you, and I'm hope are you having a Chinook out there? Is that a nice day today? It's been uh, it's been pleasant. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> well, all the best, Rob. Great to talk to you. Thanks, Mary. Likewise. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time.